Hi there, Neil here. Obviously, you love to travel. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Circa, our app available right now from the App Store on iOS, is filled with podcasts and guides for travelers. But more than that, it has a feature that we're calling the Circa Concierge, where you can have any question about any place you're traveling answered by real people on the ground. We're giving you a friend to ask anywhere in the world. And hey, if you've got questions about Barcelona, you might even get me. Because I love to help people discover my city. And if you're the same way for the city where you live, then we want you to become part of the Circa Concierge too. Right now, we're searching for concierges in Barcelona, Rome, London, Paris, Madrid, Venice, and New York City. Don't see your city listed? That's okay. We'll be rolling out new cities throughout the year, and yours might just be next. If you love where you live and love to help travelers, sign up now to be a Circa Concierge. Help out our users and earn tips for the knowledge you have about your own city or country. Head over to circatravel.com forward slash concierge and sign up today. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. In this episode of Killer Trip, we're headed to the Victorian streets of London to explore one of the most infamous serial killer cases in history, Jack the Ripper. If you want to find out more about some of the places and people we mention or dive deeper into this story, you can find maps, notes, and pictures in the Circa app. So put your headphones on, maybe wait for it to get dark, and listen closely. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. It's August 4th, 1888. A group of well-to-do Londoners have gathered in the West End at London's Lyceum Theatre to watch something rather revolutionary unfold on stage. A production of a play called Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson is premiering. It's a twisted tale of murder and maiming. A respectable doctor with a split identity as a barbarous killer. A shocked audience is alternately titillated and horrified as the performance unfolds. This, folks, is the original Fight Club, really. Jekyll is Hyde. Hyde is Jekyll. The audience that night watches their basest fears come alive on stage. They don't know it, but soon these Londoners won't need a fiction play to see their fears realized. They can simply pick up a newspaper. Because this is about to become London's Autumn of Terror. By the end of August 1888, a series of violent and barbarous murders will begin. 
women mutilated so badly, their crime scenes are still described as some of the worst ever seen. This is the autumn of Jack the Ripper. When I travel, I'm not interested in just visiting the beautiful beaches, the theme parks, and the tourist traps of a place. The well-manicured and sanitized story of it. I like to go deeper and darker. I like to find out what the darkest moments in history can tell us about the places where they happened. The crime is only the beginning of the story. This is Killer Trip. I'm your host, Dominique Ferrari. Episode 2, London, The Ripper. I'll confess, before I dove into the world of Ripperites, as they're sometimes called, I didn't know much about this case. I mean, yes, there's the top hat, the dark duster jacket, and always, always he's emerging from fog somehow. But other than that, I knew quite little. But what I discovered as I dug into one of the most famous serial killer cases in history truly stunned and horrified me. Still, 134 years, almost to the day, after the first murder occurred. That is some serious staying power. And it did more than stun me. It also schooled me in some of the most important events and eras in London's history. In many ways, this case is the quintessential one for a show like Killer Trip. Because Jack the Ripper's rampage didn't simply happen in London. It happened because of London, and in turn, it would truly change London forever. From street names, to the rapid innovation of CSI, to the living standards of London's poorest, to literally things like streetlights. The crimes of Jack the Ripper are honestly some of the most consequential murders in history. And we're gonna find out why. First, a disclaimer. Anyone who dabbles in ripperology will very quickly find out that this case has more misinformation flying around out there than a super PAC-funded Facebook group. And once these misnomers make it onto a website somewhere, they get repeated over and over again until, poof, they're suddenly canon. So there is no doubt that some of the story we're about to walk through together could have debatable facts and forensics. So we've worked hard to separate fact from fiction and keep it real, but 134 years later, sometimes that's impossible to discern. And second, a confession of my own. If you're here to find out who the Ripper really was, no can do. We can speculate, we can conjecture, we can play in conspiracy theories, but we can't, all these years later, with the evidence we have, know for sure who the killer is. And that's okay. Because in many ways, I'm much more interested in the lives of the women he took from the world. So much attention has been paid to who the Ripper might be. But what about an actual real 3D view of the women he murdered? 
They've been vacant names and faces for too long. So that's what we're going to fix. And so, in sum, short of some deus ex machina swooping in to solve the unsolvable and tell us who the Ripper really was, this story ends with a question mark, not a period. But speaking of that, that's a very fitting place to start this journey. A period. The Victorian period, to be precise. So let's set the scene. In London, this is a time of top hats and high tea. The Industrial Revolution is producing rapid advances in technology and industry. And Queen Victoria is presiding over the very height of the British Empire, which is now the richest, largest empire in the world, perhaps in history. Art, music, and literature, they're all flourishing. But that's the rosy picture you might find on the West End of London. The East End is a different story, quite literally. Charles Dickens, one of the most famous Victorian-era writers, could have set a tale of two cities just in London. While the West End is full of high society ladies and gentlemen, the East End is, simply put, one of the worst slums in the world at this time. And Whitechapel and Spitalfields, where most of Jack the Ripper's murders take place, are the worst of the worst in the East End. Now today, the houses in Whitechapel might go for millions of pounds. That was not the case then. Walking through the streets of the East End in the late 1880s would have been an absolute assault on your senses. From the streets and stores, your ears would have been flooded with the sounds of Yiddish words and music as a huge wave of Eastern European Jewish immigrants had settled in the East End. Your nose? Well, that would have been the worst of it. Sanitation was abysmal in the East End, and I do mean abysmal. The privies in most boarding houses were so awful that many folks just avoided them at all costs, going in chamber pots in their own bedrooms, which were then dumped right outside. Or they'd just simply cut the middleman out altogether and find whatever alley or hidden corner they could and go right there. In addition, the East End was also filled with slaughterhouses. So the smell of death was an everyday experience for the people who lived here. Your eyes would have been flooded with the sights of trash collecting in every corner. Fistfights, drunken men and women cycling between argument and revelry, and a lot of wandering prostitutes. London had passed a law making it illegal for prostitutes to loiter, but as long as they kept moving, they were left alone. So these walking ladies were everywhere. As a famous East Ender Jewish actor at the time, Jacob Adler, put it, in London, there is an East End and a West End. In the West End are those fortunate ones who are sent into the world with a kiss. In the East End are the others. Here live the poor, the shamed, Those who fate, seeing how shrunken and bent they are as they creep through the gates of life, spat in their face for good measure. In this spot, with the holy name Whitechapel, we would have to sink or swim, survive or go under, find bread, or if we could not, find death.
So this world of incredible filth and poverty, this is the world of Jack the Ripper. This is the area where all the murders took place, and each one of the victims was a woman who'd found herself at the end of the road. It's the night of August 30th, around 11 p.m. We're at Yi Frying Pan Public House, that's a pub, in Brick Lane, Spitalfields. The building that used to be Yi Frying Pan sits at the corner of Brick Lane and Thrall Street at 13 Brick Lane. And if you look closely at the top corner of the building facade, you can still see the carved sign with two crossed frying pans that reads Yi Frying Pan. It's one of the few places of Jack the Ripper history that still exists largely intact. Today, Brick Lane has a thriving Asian community of Bangladeshi immigrants who arrived in the 60s and opened up businesses. So it's one of the best places to cruise for an incredible curry. And for those who want to get extra close to Jack the Ripper history, the top floor of 13 Brick Lane is actually a hotel you can book a room at. Well, let us know how you sleep. Inside the public house on that night in 1888, it's like any other night. Life in the East End is hard, and getting drunk for a lot of people is one of the few pleasures available to them. So men and women would have filled the place, frittering the few pence they had to their names away on pints of bathtub gin and ale. And one of those patrons this night is Marianne Nichols, known around town as Polly. She's 43 years old, and she's drunk. Very, very drunk. Not an unusual occurrence for Polly. We don't know a lot about Polly's early life, but at 18, she married William Nichols in the Church of St. Bride's Fleet Street. Today, there's a plaque there dedicated to her that says, remember her life, not its end. She and William had several children, and by all accounts, life was going okay. But depending on who you believe, her husband cheated on her or left her due to her drinking. Either way, their marriage ended, and now Polly found herself alone, drinking the night away. As the night fades and her money runs out, Polly leaves ye old frying pan at around 12.30. It's now the wee hours of the 31st of August. Polly exits the pub and heads just up Thrall Street, only a few dozen yards to her Doss house, Wilmot's lodging house. They were pay-by-the-night kind of places, where for about four pence, which is about ten bucks today, you could sleep in a filthy room on a thin, uncomfortable mattress. I know what you might be thinking about Polly, but you have to remember that for women in the Victorian era who found themselves without a husband and without a skill, they would have had nothing else to sell but themselves. There was no safety net, no programs, no rehab, There were the streets, and that's where Polly was. She sold her body, the last thing she had left to survive. She had taken on several clients that night, but each time she'd spent the money on gin. A glass of gin cost about three pence, a bed about four. The math always seemed to lean towards gin for Polly. So now, in the early hours of the morning, she's broke. But she heads to her Doss house anyway, hoping the landlord will take pity on her and let her sleep it off for one night. She knocks on the door, but the manager turns her away. 
Polly is just drunk enough not to care. In fact, she gives it right back to him and says, I'll soon get my DOS money. See what a jolly bonnet I've got now? As she shows off the new bonnet she just bought herself with some of those hard-earned pence. And then she heads off into the night, presumably intent on picking up another client or two to earn money to stay the night. She wanders drunk down Brick Lane to Osborne Street. It's 2.30 a.m. now, and Polly runs into a friend, Emily Holland. Emily tries to get Polly to go back to her DOS house, but Polly tells her, I've had my lodging money three times today, and I have spent it. It won't be long before I'm back. And with that, Emily watches Polly drunkenly weave her way down Osborne Street towards East Whitechapel Road. Emily is the last person to see Polly alive. At 3.40 a.m., a carter, that's someone who transports things on a cart, named Charles Cross, heads down Bucks Row. Bucks Row is a small, narrow thoroughfare. It's pitch black as he does. This is because there are almost no streetlights on the East End. But there's just enough light from the waning crescent moon that night to illuminate what looks like a heap of clothing in the doorway of a stable. As he approaches the heap, he realizes that there's a woman in it, her dress pulled up to her waist and over her face. He's unsure what to do. A passed out woman who's been assaulted is sadly not uncommon here, but Charles doesn't feel like getting blamed for it. Then he hears footsteps. Tension. Fear. And then relief when he realizes it's just another carter, Robert Paul, on his way to work. They approach the woman. There's no blood that either can see. Charles puts his hand on her face and hands. They're cold. But then he senses movement in her chest. They discuss what to do about this dead or dying woman. Fearing the implications of being two men found standing over a body, they decide to move on and agree to tell the first policeman they find. They head out and minutes later run into Constable Jonas Misen. She looks to me to be either dead or drunk, Charles says to Misen, but for my part, I think she's dead. Constable Misen, having no idea of the seriousness of what he has just been told, allows the two men to continue on their way to work, and then heads to Buck's Row. However, in the meantime, two other constables on their beat head down Buck's Row, John Neal and John Thame. Had either of the Carters earlier had a lantern, as these constables do, they would have had no doubt about whether Polly was dead or passed out. Her lifeless, open eyes stare out into the cold night. Now, a pool of blood has gathered around her head. Pulling her clothing back down, its source is located. The brutality and specificity of the injuries is what links Jack the Ripper's five accepted victims, known as the Canonical Five. It's important to take account of them, but a warning that they are truly horrific. So if you're not up for it, skip ahead. Polly's throat had been savagely cut, left to right. Her abdomen had been repeatedly stabbed and slashed, practically disemboweling her. 
And finally, her genitals had been stabbed several times. Constable Meisen soon joins them, and the three men call for Dr. Reese Ralph Llewellyn, who lives nearby. At around 3.50 a.m., Dr. Llewellyn pronounces life to have been extinct, in his words, but a few minutes. Holly Nichols, Jack the Ripper's first accepted murder victim, the first of the canonical five, has been found. The autumn of terror has begun. News of Polly's gruesome killing spreads immediately. Dr. Llewellyn and the constables work to process the crime scene with the system and science they have at the time, which isn't much, no CSI just yet, while spectators begin to gather around the body. Fearing even more of a spectacle, Dr. Llewellyn orders her body be taken to the mortuary right away. And right after it's removed, residents dump buckets of water on the crime scene to clean it up, washing away any other potential evidence with it. So before we move on, I want to rewind the tape just a bit. I want to revisit this murder scene, but with a different point of view. Because while we've just met Jack the Ripper's first victim, for some Ripper historians, we've also met Jack the Ripper himself. So let's go back to the beginning. It's just after 3.40 a.m. Robert Paul, the second carter, is on his way to work when he heads down Buck's Row. As he walks, he notices a man standing over a heap in a side gateway. The man approaches Paul, which Paul later remarks to the police felt a bit odd. Robbery and assault are extremely common in this part of town. In general, you keep your distance from other men at that hour and in a place like Buck's Row. But this man seems eager to approach Paul. He says, come, look over here, there's a woman. Paul obliges, and there is Polly. Her face is cold, but her chest seems to have some movement and warmth. There's no blood they can see. The man Paul is with gives his name as Charles Cross. His actual name is Charles Lechmere. As we'll find out, Jack the Ripper's other victims typically shared a series of injuries. Their throats were always slit. They were ripped open from their genitals up their torsos, often with their bowels removed or tossed over a shoulder. And finally, they had various organs removed. But not Polly Nichols. The body was warm when Paul arrived. Life had been extinct, but a few minutes, as Dr. Llewellyn had stated. No blood pooled around her head that they could see. No organs removed. Yet, she is unquestionably counted as Jack the Ripper's first canonical victim. There can be only two explanations for this discrepancy with the Ripper's subsequent victims. Either the Ripper was learning as he went, increasing the barbarity of his attacks as he gathered confidence, or... He had been interrupted in the act by Robert Paul. As we'll find out, Jack the Ripper's other victims typically shared a series of injuries. Their throats were always slit. 
Had Charles Cross, a.k.a. Charles Lechmere, been in the process of killing Polly when Robert Paul wandered onto Buck's Row? Had he quickly made the decision to pull Polly's dress over her head to obscure her injuries and then feign shock to Paul? Is that why he gave a false name to the constable? At the time, though there would be dozens of Ripper suspects, Charles Cross wasn't considered. It wasn't until the early 2000s that several Ripper historians began to seriously look into Charles and realize that his route to work established proximity and his work schedule established opportunity for several of the other murders. And he was a local. While many people in the West End and writers of tabloid papers, who were also typically from the West End, became intrigued with the notion that the Ripper was some real-life Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, a high-society, respectable man with medical knowledge by day, turned killer by night, just as in the play, most Ripper historians these days are convinced that Jack the Ripper must have been local to the East End. There is simply no way he could pull off the murders he pulled off in the fairly public places many of them took place without an extreme level of knowledge and comfort with the streets and alleyways of the East End. It's far too late to know for sure if Charles Lechmere was Jack the Ripper, but the case against him is certainly intriguing. And I wanted to use this shifting POV as an example of how maddening it is to try and hone in on a suspect all these years later with the flawed details and evidence available to us now. But whoever Jack the Ripper was, he was just getting started. While a random lower-class woman being murdered in the East End would have scarcely been considered news in the West End, it caught the attention of the press. Because Polly's murder came on the heels of two other brutal murders committed in close proximity just weeks earlier. The press seized on the similarities in the cases and began to surmise that some kind of violent lunatic was stalking the women of the East End. While those first two murders have never been able to be conclusively linked to Jack the Ripper, the pattern was enough for the press to run with it. Headlines like, Horrible Murder in East London, Whitechapel Mystery, began to run. And with them, readers began to run with theories and conspiracies. Sound familiar? Yeah. Podcasts didn't invent the true crime craze. It's a tale as old as the first scary campfire stories told. There were scant details surrounding Polly's case. Investigator Frederick Aberlein was called back from Scotland Yard to head the case. He had worked for years as an investigator and was more familiar with the criminal underworld there than perhaps anyone in the department. But after a week of thorough investigation, he had come up with nothing serious to go on in Polly's murder. The trail was cold. It wouldn't stay cold for long. More after the break. Hi, everyone. Circa is recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Polly Nichols' murder was still dominating headlines, and lead investigator Frederick Aberlein had made absolutely no headway in identifying a suspect. Word would have spread among the women of Whitechapel in the East End to be on the lookout. But in Whitechapel, a serial killer was the last of most people's worries. There were a hundred other things that would kill or maim you before a random killer ever could. Just ask Annie Chapman, Jack the Ripper's second canonical victim, or Dark Annie, as she was known in Whitechapel. Annie had grown up with a decent start in life. Her father, George Smith, was an army man who'd made his way up the ranks to become a respected and decently paid valet for a cavalry officer. This afforded Annie and her siblings a nice house, education, and some of the finer things in life. In fact, working as they did in such proximity to an esteemed officer would have surely meant that Annie would have seen and been exposed to various members of royalty throughout her childhood. But sometimes, life can turn on a dime. And that was the case in Annie's life. A scarlet fever outbreak made its way through their neighborhood, and soon, four of 12-year-old Annie's six siblings were dead in one fell swoop. This broke Annie's father, who began drinking. It's also been suggested that around this time, Annie herself began drinking. The family soldiered on, and Annie's parents had two more children. They were still well off for the time, and they continued to live in nice houses and rub elbows with Britain's upper class. But George's drinking continued. By all accounts, he wasn't violent or mean to his family. He was simply, incurably sad. And finally, in 1863, when Annie was 23 years old, George committed suicide. How he did it, though, is a little chilling when taken in context with what would become his oldest daughter's fate. He slit his own throat. Annie's mother, Ruth, was afforded an allowance from George's old employer, which helped keep her and Annie's younger siblings with a roof over their head and enough money to stay afloat. She was also able to bring on boarders to help bring in more money. One of these boarders was a man named John Chapman. Annie and John fell in love. They married in 1869 when Annie was 27. John was a valet, just like her father had been, and this afforded them a good living. Again, nice houses, fine clothes, and they continued to keep company with the upper class. But Annie still drank, enough for those who loved her to notice and desperately hope she would stop. Annie and John had two daughters, Annie Georgina and Emily, and Annie was a doting, happy mother. She dressed her daughters in fine clothing and even had their pictures taken, a luxury. Then, in 1880, Annie had a son. 
He was born with a disability that led Annie and John to put him into a home. Annie's drinking worsened. Then, in the fall of 1882, her daughter Emily contracted meningitis. Annie, unable to cope with the stress, drank even more. Sickness had taken most of her siblings, and now it had come for her daughter. On the day her daughter Emily died in November of that year, Annie voluntarily entered Spellthorne Sanatorium. The sanatorium was basically the closest thing to a rehab for middle to upper class women in those days. The women abstained from drinking, went to church, and practiced a skill like sewing. Annie stayed there for an entire year, got sober, and eventually returned to John and Annie Georgina. She made it home in time for Christmas that year, and all seemed to be going well. Until John got sick. It was just a bad cold, but he brought home a bottle of whiskey, a common treatment for colds at the time. It was more than Annie could handle. She relapsed. John's employer told him Annie couldn't stay anymore. It was his job or Annie. As far as we can tell, John and Annie's marriage was truly one of deep love, but John knew the math on this. Without his job and income, they'd be sunk. They agreed that Annie would go to stay with her family and John would send her a 10 shilling a week allowance. That's 120 pence or a pound. Annie didn't last more than a few days. She left her family, and that is how she came to find herself on the East End of London during Jack the Ripper's reign of terror. Annie took up with a friend named Jack Civy on Dorset Street. Dorset Street was mostly demolished in the 1920s, but back then, this was the worst of the worst streets in Whitechapel, akin to Skid Row in Los Angeles today. Annie lived with Jack and continued to drink. It's not clear what the nature of their relationship was, but around town, people began to know Annie as Annie Civy. Her allowance from John arrived on time each week, and this afforded her and Jack more than enough money to live on. Until the winter of 1886, when her allowance abruptly stopped. Annie walked 30 miles outside London by foot to go to John. She told those who knew her at the time that it was to find out if John was trying to get out of paying her for some reason. But the fact that she walked so far in the winter to go to him suggests that she was worried about him. And her worry was well-founded. The allowance had stopped because John had become ill. Cirrhosis of the liver and edema. And on Christmas Day, 1886, John died. Annie was never the same. She and Jack Civy parted ways, perhaps because she no longer came with an allowance. And now, Annie was deeply in trouble. She'd always found a way to get by with her allowance and some supplemental sewing work she'd taken on, even with her drinking. But now, without John's allowance, she was truly destitute. And what's more, she was also sick. 
somewhere along the way, likely due to the cramped and dirty surroundings in Whitechapel, Annie had contracted tuberculosis. For the next two years, her drinking got worse, and so did her health. By 1888, Annie was sick, and she looked it. As far as we can tell, she scraped by with sewing and crochet work and by selling flowers occasionally. By 1888, she was renting beds at Crossingham's lodging houses. But just like Polly Nichols, on the night of September 7, 1888, just one week after Polly had been killed, Annie doesn't have lodging money. She goes to the manager of the lodging house and asks to stay that night and tells him she'll pay him back. But he knows that she's spent two pence on a beer that day. Too proud to beg, Annie tells him that that's all right, that she'll come back in just a bit with the money. She leaves around 1.35 a.m., now September 8th, and they watch as she walks off and turns towards Spitalfields Market, a lively street market that still exists to this day. Hours later, at 5.30 a.m., a woman named Elizabeth Long has just turned onto Hanbury Street. As she does, she hears the bells of the Black Eagle Brewery on nearby Brick Lane ring out, marking the half hour. Today, the Black Eagle Brewery is the Truman Brewery and still a great place for a meal and a pint, specifically Truman's Eagle Ale, locally brewed in London. As she nears 29 Hanbury Street, she sees Annie Chapman talking with a man against the shutters of a building. Annie's face is clear to her, but the man's back is to her. She hears the man say, will you? And Annie replies, I will. A few minutes later, Albert Kaddish, a carpenter who lives just next door at 27 Hanbury Street, walks into the back courtyard and hears voices close by. He hears a woman saying no, and then the sound of something falling against the fence. But sadly, this would not have been an unusual sound in the East End, and so he does nothing. Then, just before 6 a.m., John Davis, a carman who lived upstairs at 29 Hanbury, discovers Annie's body. He alerts the police. Again, her throat had been slit. She had been fully disemboweled with her intestines thrown over her right shoulder. She had been ripped open from her genitals to her chest, and now... Her uterus and two-thirds of her bladder had been removed. Other organs hadn't been damaged, which would later add fuel to the rumors that the killer was a doctor of some kind, though, once again, these murders took place in the epicenter of slaughterhouses in London. Doctors aren't the only people who understand anatomy. Annie's murder also lends more credence to the theory that the Ripper was local. Today, the building that was 29 Hanbury Street is long gone, but the street itself still retains some of its Victorian look with tall buildings. But what really stands out is how central it is. On one end is Brick Lane, and on the other is Commercial Street, both bustling thoroughfares then and now. The fact that the killer felt so confident as to commit a murder as the sun was rising in a courtyard as people would have been heading to work. And in such a boxed-in street, once again, speaks to the idea that whoever Jack the Ripper was, 
He was incredibly confident that he could get away with it, that he could blend in, disappear. The news of Annie Chapman's murder spread quickly, and locals began flocking to the murder site to get a glimpse of it. As Echo Magazine reported, the excitement has, as we say, been intense. The terror is extreme. The house and the mortuary were besieged by people, and it is said that during part of Saturday, people flocked in great numbers to see the blood-stained spot in the yard, paying a penny each. These murders were now officially a fiasco. Pressure mounted on Inspector Aberlein to come up with something, anything, this time. And this time, he did. Several suspects were arrested after Annie Chapman's murder. Leather workers who had bloody aprons. A lunatic found yelling misogynistic screeds with a bite mark on his hand. Annie's ex-roommate slash possible lover, Edward Stanley. All were eventually cleared and released. The press was, of course, wild with speculation and conjecture. It was after Annie Chapman's death that the public itself truly started becoming part of the story, writing into this tabloid or that with tales of eyewitness accounts, theories about who the murderer must be, and more. In addition, the press made some assumptions about Annie Chapman that have still stuck to this day. Ask most people what Jack the Ripper's victims had in common, and they'll probably tell you that they were all prostitutes. And that was certainly the story the press seized on with Annie. But was Annie Chapman really a prostitute? Most evidence points to no, or to the idea that it was something she only occasionally dabbled in when she absolutely had no other options. And we know that on the night of her death, she was so sick that after examining her body, the coroner estimated that if she hadn't been murdered, she would have died within two weeks from her advanced state of tuberculosis. Did Annie even have the energy to engage in that level of activity that night? We don't know for sure. But the press's assumption that she was a prostitute was at the very least only part of her story. As the fall-September air began to cool London, a chilling anxiety settled on the East End. When and who would the Ripper strike next? It was most assuredly on most people's minds, especially the women of Whitechapel. We'll see you back on the streets of London in part two. Thank you for listening to this episode of Killer Trip. This has been part one of a two-part series. Check out all our other episodes of Killer Trip wherever you get your podcasts, or you can also download it in our Circa app. And with a Circa subscription, you'll unlock so much more. Immersive guides to Barcelona, London, Costa Rica, New York City, and some of the best travel podcasts around, including our fan favorite series, Passport. Download the Circa app from the iOS store to check it out. All right, guys, see you next crime. Circa, love the world you live in?
and we'll help you explore it.